Hello again, everyone. Thank you for joining me for Season 3 of Uncommentary. This is your host for the entire season. My name is Marty Duran. Thanks for joining. Big shout out to my Patreons, my patrons, I suppose, at Patreon. And if you would like to be a supporter, or if you would just consider being a supporter, head on over to patreon.com slash uncommentary and do it right now. Hit pause, jump on over there, and make a commitment for a minuscule two or three or four or five dollars a month. Will cost you almost nothing, will be a tremendous help to me. Uh, in paying for audio work and scheduling and just some little bitty things that help make Uncommentary the uh, growing and good and hopefully even better this season podcast than it has been. Uh, if you'd like to give a one-time gift, head over to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod and you'll be able to make a one-time gift via your debit or credit card. And uh, that would also be greatly, greatly appreciated. Now for this week's episode. My guest today on Uncommentary is Dr. Noah Tolley, Director of the Center for Urban Engagement and Professor of Urban Studies and Politics and International Relations at Wheaton College. He also serves as non-resident senior fellow for the Global Cities at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and teaches on cities and urbanism in the Free University of Berlin's Center for Global Politics. In 2011, he was named an emerging leader by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Dr. Tully is a frequent speaker on cities, urban life, and the environment. His written work has appeared in Capital Commentary, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Comment, The Hedgehog Review, Quartz, and Sightings, among other publications. In addition to the newly published The Gardener's Dirty Hands, Environmental Politics and Christian Ethics, he's the author of Cities of Tomorrow and the City to Come, A Theology of Urban Life, and What is Mercy Ministry, co-authored with Philip Ryken. You can follow him on Twitter, at Noah Tully. Dr. Noah Tolley, welcome to Uncommentary. Great to be with you, Marty. Thanks for having me. So how's the weather up in Wheaton? Well, we've had some gorgeous weather in the past few days. Our first fall days, really crisp, uh, clear skies, just beautiful. I've actually had my class outside twice in this past week, which is very nice. That is nice. But today it is rainy with uh, thunderstorms. <laughs> so Wheaton is what? Is it an hour outside of Chicago? Yeah, we're about an hour west of what what most people know as downtown Chicago. Okay, we're only about twenty miles, maybe less than that, uh, from the city limits. Okay, so it's we're not that far away um, if you're thinking about local West Side neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. But uh, Chicago is a vast space. So um, you might not be a household name, which is a shame, uh, based on the reading that I've done so far. So uh, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I teach urban and environmental politics at Wheaton College, where I've been on the faculty since 2006. I serve as executive director of the Center for Urban Engagement at the college and also chair of the Urban Studies Department. And I'm appointed in uh, politics and international relations. Um, my wife also teaches Spanish at the college, so we uh, are glad to live close by uh, we enjoy having students over quite a bit, uh, having a short walk for our commutes. And we have three kids, uh, 16, 13, and 10, Joe, Ben, and Rose. Uh, Joe is now on the road with his license as of just about a week ago. So the streets of <laughs> Illinois are not safe any longer. You don't look old enough to have a 16-year-old. Congratulations on that. Thank you. 
So you have a new book out, um, The Gardener's Dirty Hands, Environmental Politics and Christian Ethics. And I think I must have seen you tweeting about this or something. I know I've been following you on Twitter for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I reached out, got a copy, and um, it, it's really uh, it's fascinating to me. It's um, I love to read about stuff that I don't know yet, and this book is filled with stuff that I don't know. Um, so it's been interesting from that perspective. Uh, but one of the first things that caught my attention was the imagery of the gardener's dirty hands is more than just creative wordplay, it seems like, uh, because you go into Bonhoeffer's uh, use of clean and dirty. So uh, what brought you to the title of this book? Sure, that's a good question. Uh, there, was a, there was a long stretch where I didn't know what the title of this book was going to be. I had submitted it uh, in the proposal form to the publisher, Oxford University Press, as the Macondoization of the world. Um, <laughs> and the, the editor loved the idea of the book and all the samples I had submitted, but she did have a few words about the title. Are, are they repeatable? Yeah, they, they are repeatable, thankfully. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that there, there are some things people would think about the title that are not repeatable. <laughs> Um, and she said, you know, she wasn't a big fan of neologisms in the first place, although she thought it worked as a chapter title later in the book. Mm -hmm. And the other issue is no one would have any idea what that book was about or how to look it up. No one would ever find it. Yeah. I even saw that movie about Deepwater Horizon and I, I didn't know where you were going with that. Right. Yeah. Most people don't know. Uh, and I, we can come back to that. Yeah. uh, What the Macondoization piece would be about or what Macondo has to do with the Deepwater Horizon or environmental challenges. So the funny thing is I was I was agonizing over the title of this book for a while. And at the same time, I had this essay I wanted to write called The Gardener's Dirty Hands. Oh, yeah. That would have been sort of an essay length treatment of some of the themes from the book. And I loved that title. And I was so attached to it as an essay title. And I realized one day I just woke up one day and realized. I know I have the solution to my problem. Yeah, right here in front of me. I've been sitting on the title the whole time. So uh, it captured really well what the what the book meant to get at with these tragic choices, the need to um, give up, undermine, forego, or even destroy one or more goods in order to possess or secure one or more other goods in a way that makes us guilty mm-hmm. um, and and gives us dirty hands, but at the same time, um, part of partly because of the necessity of it and partly because of the pure goodness of it in a way. Um, it's it's the kind of dirty hands a gardener can have, mm-hmm. where they're dirty from good work. That's excellent. I love the uh, I love the title and the, the whole imagery behind that. Um, so, talk to me a little bit about the book. What is um, what what are you hoping to accomplish? Uh, talk through some of the uh, the content. Uh, what what's going to? I'm, I'm assuming it's a text type book. It kind of has that feel as a textbook. So somebody's going to be using it in a classroom, but uh, but why is this important? What are Christian ethics related to the environment? I would guess that the average person would struggle with even that thought. Sure. Um, and in fact, that's why I've written it, uh, because because most uh, most readers would struggle with that thought, because I was a person who would have struggled with that thought um, some time ago. Mm-hmm. And I guess the best way to get into what is the book about, what am I trying to do with it, is to narrate the the moments of recognition um, that are narrated a bit in the preface and the uh, first chapter. Mm-hmm. And I think those moments of recognition go something like this. 
the first realization um, that I had that led to this book was a long time ago. It would have been around 1999 when I had been for, for a long time tempted to think of the environment and society, nature and society as, as separable concepts, separable categories, disentangleable um, experiences. Mm -hmm. And I came to realize that that wasn't true at all. Uh, I came to realize that because I was working um, while studying at the same time, working in community development in Wilmington, Delaware, and learned about the problem of brownfields. Right. And brownfields are sites where real or perceived soil contamination negatively affects the prospects for development or redevelopment efforts at a certain site, any given site. And what I realized was that these environmental challenges, contamination, pollution in that case, were economic challenges. They were social challenges. Um, and in fact, they were uh, most fraught in the neighborhoods where I was already most um, concerned or the organizations I was working with were most at work. Mm -hmm. And that immediately disabused me of the notion that environment and society or nature and society could be so easily uh, disentangled. Uh, just for uh, just for a little clarity, uh, a brownfield, as you describe it in your book, is a place uh, in an urban center where uh, there used to be some type of industry. You specify, I think, uh, tanneries and possibly chemical plants or something like that. But anyway... Uh, and because of the type of work that was done in these places, and some of these are decades ago, not like continuing, but decades ago, and the, the mm -hmm. plants are gone, but the contaminants remain in the soil, potentially, uh, and it makes using uh, using the, the brown field problematic, and the existence of the brown field is also problematic, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and and the effects of that, the costs of that are generally borne disproportionately um, by the poor. Mm. And in the cases in Wilmington that we were talking about, by neighborhoods predominantly populated by people of color. Mm -hmm. um, the second moment of realization had to do with the, the tragic nature of, of dealing with these kinds of challenges. I was giving a lecture at Wheaton College. In fact, I was giving the lecture I gave while interviewing for the job I currently hold. Wow. And the Q&A you, you, you gave a lecture during your interview? Yes, exactly. That's amazing. Yeah, that's, that is pretty typical for an academic position. What was, un, what was atypical for this particular lecture was that I was responsible for teaching a three-and-a-half-hour class session that <laughs> night. Um, <laughs> And that was uh, that was unusual, but that was the class session. It was easiest to to fit me in yeah. in order to test my ability to teach or my ability to speak to a, an audience like that. That's awesome. And I spoke about brownfields and brownfield remediation and a possible uh, future in which a city might remediate all of its brownfields. And everybody was excited about that. It seemed um, lots of questions, but mostly positive responses. And in the end, uh, one more hand went up just as the Q&A was about to come to a close. And you know that's trouble. Uh, <laughs> when somebody's trying to shut down the Q&A and, and the last hand sneaks up, the right. person who couldn't quite figure out where to slip that question in earlier. And, and this person said, well, why would you want to remediate all of the brownfields? And I didn't understand the question. I, I 
I was, I think, obviously perplexed. Yeah. I said, can you explain to me what you mean? And he said, well, you know, some of the brownfields will be less expensive, uh, less costly to remediate. Some will be more costly to remediate. And it could be that a better way to use some of the money, the rather than remediated, remediating even the toughest brownfields, would be to devote that same funding to education or nutrition or public health or something like that. And uh, I immediately retreated into a, a sort of dichotomy between equity and efficiency. And I just said, well, if I'm a policymaker, I don't want to walk into one neighborhood and say, good news, we've remediated your brownfields, and then walk into the neighboring community and say, I'm sorry, you just have to keep suffering from these, yeah. um, suffering the diseases that they bring. Your kids will continue to have to play on and near them. Uh, we're not going to fix these ones. But the question still haunted me because it revealed the um, the trad, what I call the tragic structure of these questions in which you have to give up or undermine or destroy one or more goods in order to possess or secure one or more other goods. And even when I appealed to equity, I was already engaged in a sort of trade-off. I was already trading off efficiency in order to have equity. Mm -hmm. That is, there was no, there was no answer that actually, um, transcended that problem or got me out of that challenge. And, and it was years later, I, that haunted me for a long time. And years later, reading uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's ethics, I uh, read in one of his passages, a quotation of the Greek poet Aeschylus. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's from the Oresteia, the main character Orestes has um, returned home and has found that his mother has killed his father. And he, he is bound to avenge his father's death. But avenging his father's death, which he's bound to do, is matricide mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so he's torn between these two right things. And the chorus, he, he, he yells out in anguish, uh, right collides with right. The chorus actually says, but still some God, if he desires, may work these strains into a song of joy. Mm. Um, Bonhoeffer doesn't quote the chorus there, but evokes this, this whole moment in the Oresteia when he says, right collides with right, and he describes it as the definitive context for responsible action. And I thought to myself, there's somebody who's put his finger on the same challenge, but in a different and broader area. All of, all of Christian ethics is what he's writing about in that case. Right. And maybe I can draw upon resources like this and others that have treated this context in which right collides with right or treated the tragic to answer some questions about environmental politics. And those are the main three revelations or um, uh, realizations along the way that led to the book. And I'm hoping to expose how environmental, modern environmental thought and global environmental governance are structured according to this tragic structure and how Christian ethics can help us to respond to that in constructive ways. So um, let's just jump right into the uh, environmental part of it. What is the, what's the ethical dilemma that Christians have 
Uh, and I'm going to say if the climate is changing because um, I think the evidence is sufficient to show that there's some sub- sub- substantial change going on, but I'm not smart enough to know how to ex- how to explain it. Um, but what's the what's the Christian ethical response to a climate that is changing that looks like it has the potential to cause some real damage to people who can't get out of its way? Great question. And I think that we're um, we're best to begin thinking about climate change as number one, the result of responding to tragic choices, uh, the result of responses to needing to give up or undermine or secure, uh, give up, undermine or destroy one good in order to possess or secure another, in the sense that we've built all sorts of energy systems in ways that help us to accumulate goods that we would otherwise have a hard time possessing at the same time. In other words, I can be here now and in 30 minutes because of our fossil fuel energy regime and the automobiles we drive, I can be in Chicago for an appointment later today. Right. Um, That's not possible historically apart from those developments. Mm -hmm. Now, is there an alternative way to, to, you know, actually cover that distance in a 30-minute span? Sure. Will the future bring us one? Possibly, yes. But we actually developed these tools in order to um, possess both those goods at once, the good of me being on the, on the phone here with you mm-hmm. and the good of me being at that appointment there later on the same day. Right. Frankly, I could be here today now and then I could be later today in Atlanta for a dinner if I wanted to mm-hmm. uh, because I could get on a plane. And so all these different things we've done in order to um, transcend the or attempt to transcend the difficulty of choosing between two things um, has resulted in the end in displacing costs onto vulnerable uh, ecosystems, voiceless populations, and future generations. In the, in the sense of creating a chaotic or increasingly chaotic uh, and changing climate, energizing the atmosphere. So uh, that energizing of the atmosphere um, is going to cause all sorts of changes in weather, uh, changes in sea level that are different in different parts of the world. It's not uniform. Mm-hmm. And the people who've done the most to... Um, create or contribute to the problem are also least vulnerable to it. And the people least vulnerable to it typically have done very little, relatively speaking, historically and now to contribute to it. And so there's this um, asymmetry or imbalance between the contribution and the way in which we bear the costs. So so So, just to just clarify the, uh, industrialized countries, which uh, are which would be contributing the most to the man-made portions of climate change, um, feel immediately feel the less uh, the least of the um, uh, effects of it. While someone who lives on an island uh, on part of the Indonesian chain, say, uh, who does nothing except periodically build a fire over which they would cook fish. Um, but their the sea levels rising around their home has contributed virtually nothing, but they feel the immediate impact and have zero ability to do anything about it. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. And there are some, you know, some ways to nuance that a little bit. Sure. Some industrialized countries are likely to feel some significant effects, but also have the wealth and resources to adapt to the effects better. Yeah. So, yes, the way you've put it is exactly right. And the way to, um, if someone were to dig deeper, they would want to dig deeper on the difference between mitigating it, that is, avoiding some of the possible changes in the climate by changing our behavior mm -hmm. or adapting to it. That is allowing it to happen around us and then using the resources we have to face it in safer ways. Mm -hmm. So that's the reality of it. And, and I think grasping that as uh, emerging from responses to tragic choices is important. We we're in a position in terms of climate change where 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people may have actually talked about the possibility of seriously mitigating climate change, taking mitigation steps first and avoiding its most serious effects in the future and adapting second. We're now in a position where it's um, where some of the changes in the climate are essentially foregone conclusions, mm. where there's less that we can realistically do to, to change the reality of energizing the climate and reduce our exposure to the risk. So the question becomes, how do we actually bear the cost? Who bears the costs and, and how do we do that? And I, my recommendation is that we think about this as uh, through, through the lens of what I call in chapter four of the book, the cruciform, cruciform imaginary. Um, in which we would choose to bear the costs ourselves so that others might benefit rather than displacing the costs onto others so that we might benefit. Right. And I think that's if the bottom line is that the Christian response to tragic choices, in my opinion, is to create structures and virtues, both of them, that lead to my choosing to bear a cost so others benefit rather than the opposite. Talking to Dr. Noah Tolley on Uncommentary about environmental politics and Christian ethics, and we'll be right back after this. If you are a regular listener to Uncommentary, you know that earlier this season I had Dr. Heath Carter on to talk about Labor Day and uh, the early labor movement in America and how it was influenced by Protestantism. In that interview, I think we mentioned that he is the editor or co-editor uh, of the Library of Religious Biography published by the William Erdman's Publishing Company. Um, I've been able to get a couple of copies of books from that series, which is now about 30 volumes long, uh, A Christian and a Democrat, a Religious Biography of Franklin D. Roosevelt, and the book Damning, uh, Damning Words, The Life and Religious Times of H.L. Mencken, who, if the picture on the cover is any indication, got his hair done at the same place that Alfalfa did. Uh, but this series is, uh, is lengthy and deep. There are about 30 volumes in it right now. It's um, uh, preachers, professors, theologians, public figures, um, men, women, uh, white folks, people of color. It's a, uh, it's a phenomenal work, and it's ongoing. And so um, it's well done. The authors are varied. Uh, the subjects are varied. It is the Library of Religious Biography, published by the William Erdman's Company. Uh, I would encourage you to uh, look at it, find it online. There's a web page on the website that's dedicated to just these volumes, 
and uh, take a look at them and uh, grab the ones that interest you. Uh, we're back with Dr. Noah Tully. Um, so I want to try to pick up the, the cruciform idea of where uh, we are willing to bear a cost we don't owe to help those uh, who are being affected by it who can't pay. That's my summary, which does sound like, rather like a Christian and a cross-oriented idea. Um, but how does how do we, who are believers, uh, if we assume that we have that responsibility and I think right now it's safe to assume that in America, not all believers even believe they have that responsibility at all. But assuming that we all believed it, recognized it, and embraced that we have some type of responsibility, we are, I mean, for the individual, that means we don't drive as much and we ride bicycles more. But what does it mean from like a policy perspective? What could actually be done uh, in a way that would mean something to emissions or to uh, carbon output or sequestration or something of that nature? That's a very good question, and it gets to the the heart of, in some ways, the lacuna uh, that my book tries to fill a tiny little bit, um, which is to say there's there's a whole library of books off the top of my head that deal with how we as individuals might respond to something like this uh, from a Christian ethical point of view. There is not a whole library of books on this topic when it comes to governance or when it comes to policy and politics. And that isn't to say there aren't a lot of books to draw from. There are. We would want to draw from political and public theology. We would want to draw from Christian ethics. We'd want to draw from environmental politics and see how um, all those pieces might come together and help us envision what um, policy changes ought to look like. One of the basic things that I recommend in the book, and, and again, my book just is a drop in the bucket that we need. Mm-hmm. We need a whole bucket of this to deal with the challenge. And my book is, is one drop, um, one step toward having a, a bit of a library in this area. But one of the changes that we need is to embrace or to um, at least tolerate policies that don't allow us to displace the costs on others so that we can benefit, if right. that makes sense. Yeah. So starting with the low-hanging fruit of getting rid of what economists call negative externalities, um, or rather internalizing negative externalities, so that the people who make certain choices and benefit from them also are the ones who have to bear the costs of those choices. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a start because we would take care of quite a bit of um, transboundary environmental issues, uh, community environmental issues, if we just uh, started there. The next step would be to find ways to incentivize people to respond by bearing costs so others benefit. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit trickier. Um, That actually has a little more to do uh, with with individual virtue, I think, than it does with um, creating policy incentives. You can create incentive structures, but if you're not going to require people to actually behave this way, then it is dependent on the development of their virtue, their response to the challenge. And they're seeing the structural um, 
the structural challenges and then the structural opportunities to actually bear the cost so others benefit. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that you do this, uh, or you support this at least, is you create feedback mechanisms so that the costs can be known to everybody. So if there's a cost of one of my choices, um, I should know it in order that I can bear it myself. Or mm -hmm. if there's a if there's a way someone else might benefit by me bearing a cost, and this is that second step, I should actually know about that possibility. There should be scientific uh, evidence. There should be um, scientific communication, which is a whole field unto itself now. How do we communicate the science to people who are not scientists themselves but want to know? I should know what I can do that would reduce the burdens on others. So what are, and, what are, what are some, uh, what would that look like practically? Is that yeah. choosing car C over car B or car B over car A, or is that choosing to take the train to work instead of driving or carpooling instead of driving alone or take, a good taking a bike or putting solar panels on your roof? I mean, wh what does it look like practically? Yeah. So there's a good question right there. Solar panels is a great example. Uh, I'm going to revisit the car C over car A thing too. Okay. Um, so solar panels are a great example because there's a lot you can do as a, in, in a policy way to incentivize people to put solar panels on their roofs, yeah. but not require them to do. Yeah. And um, incentives obviously involve those people benefiting. Uh, so, you know, it's not purely bearing costs so that others may benefit, but you can, you can also show people how installing a solar panel on their roof um, actually allows us to reduce burdens on voiceless uh, communities, vulnerable ecosystems, and future generations. And they can then make that choice in a context of incentives that may uh, reduce their costs a little bit as well, and may also show them how they can, say, integrate their home into the grid and provide a little more stability to the local energy regime. Yeah, that's good. Um, when we have brownouts, for example, mm -hmm. uh, we could avoid a lot of those if we were generating our own power at each site. Um, but revisiting the car A versus car C thing, I, I want to emphasize, too, that there is not a way that we can avoid these tragic choices or, or these trade-offs, we will always find ourselves in the midst of them trading off one good thing against another and somewhere there will be a cost. So here's an example of a, a jacket I had to think about buying several years ago. I moved from Philadelphia to Chicago um, and I realized very quickly that my, this was in 2006, my Philadelphia jacket, which was just fine for winters in the mid-Atlantic, was completely and utterly <laughs> inadequate to the winters here in Chicago. Um, I actually, what, what it did was it let all the cold, cold air in to me yeah. and then it kept the cold air next to me. That's what it did. It was, it was defeating the purpose actually. So I immediately thought I need a better jacket than this one, or I may freeze before we get to the end of the first year. And I thought about, well, you know, what jacket do I buy in this case? Um, and I had to make this choice. Do I buy a, a coat that's a little more expensive, uh, made from recycled materials, easily recyclable itself, mm -hmm. and with um, some choices that are actually made by brands that invest in environmental sustainability? Mm -hmm. They take 
percentage of their profits to do that? Um, or do I buy a much less expensive jacket that won't last as long? It'll have a little more burden on the environment for that reason. Not, it's not made from recyclable materials. It's not probably recyclable itself, but I can buy three of those and give two of them away to homeless people in need of jackets yeah. for the same price. Um, and you can see how both of those are good things to do. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what we think about climate change in particular, I think most of us would say uh, we, we don't want to accelerate um, negative impacts on, on the earth and on our environment. Um, and my father-in-law works for the Detroit Rescue Mission and has for 40 years, so I knew right where to give coats for the homeless. Right, right. Um, and I, I actually chose the coat that would last longer, have lower impact on the environment, was made from recyclable materials. It was a wonderful coat, and it lasted me over 10 years. That's awesome. Well, here's the, Less, here's the, here's the other but, problem, though. But I still had to choose. I, I couldn't yeah. give that. I couldn't give those other two coats to, to homeless people. And I've had to bear, if I wanted to do that, I've had to bear extra costs along the way yeah. to give away those funds. Well, but here's the problem. The average, I think the average, uh, even the average Christian in America would buy the cheaper coat and then go out to eat four times. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And you know what? That's actually a great point. That has, that resonates so much with the book to contrast those two kinds of decisions. Um, because on the one hand, you have the, I'm going to buy the cheaper coat and go out to eat four times. Um, which is to internalize all these benefits for oneself. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you have two different versions of trying to bear some cost so that others might benefit. And the fact that we don't get out of the realm of a tragic choice that way doesn't mean there's no wrong way to respond or no right way to respond. The wrong way is to displace costs on others so that I can have benefits. Mm -hmm. And then there's a plurality of potentially legitimate right ways to respond, like the two coat options I presented. Um, and neither of them is entirely self-justifying. Neither is without costs, but they're both potentially legitimate. Why? Um, so I want to I want to go back because there's there's no way we can get away since you brought up the uh, water horizon and the the name of the book that you were going for. Uh, back before you sobered up. Um, uh, I want you to bring in that, that idea of the novel, the 100 years of something. I know that's, that's, I can't remember the full title. Um, it's in my Amazon cart now, thanks to you, sure. but I can't remember the name of it. That's great. Yeah. Uh, but, but talk about that because you bring in, um, you know, United Fruit Company and basically, you know, the, where we, we we uh, we use the term banana republic without knowing anything about what the roots of it are about, um, right. but how that affects or, or how that can be uh, writ large uh, on a global idea of uh, these things affect people in bad ways and why you think most so many Christians I shouldn't say most why you think so many Christians don't think about the larger impact that our collective actions can have. And we're kind of stuck with, well, I didn't commit adultery, uh, so it doesn't matter if we're pouring mercury into the river. Mm. Well, I'll start with the the Deepwater Horizon piece and the connection yes. to the novel, and then let's come back to that second question. You may have to remind me what it was. You may you have to remind me to remind you <laughs> because it uh, there were both such good questions. 
and I didn't want to lose track of the book name. Um, so the, the third chapter of my book is called The Macondoization of the World, which we mentioned earlier, uh, which was the rejected title of the book. As you said, I, I eventually sobered up. <laughs> and uh, what happened was that the Deepwater Horizon Gulf oil spill um, was out of a well that was named for a fictional town in Gabriel Garcia Marquez's book, 100 Years of Solitude. Yes. Uh, so Marquez was a Latin American author who uh, won the Nobel Prize for literature. 100 Years of Solitude is one of his most well-known works, maybe his most well-known work. And uh, there was a certain irony in the naming of that well. So every year, um, wells like this are named for things like uh, heavenly bodies, you know, named after stars or named after constellations, or they're named after superheroes, or they're named after beverages or whatever. Um, they're codenamed in order to refer to them more easily than it, it would be to refer them by, say, their tech, refer to them by their technical names. Mm -hmm. And it's a common practice in the industry. Well, the rights to name this particular well had been sold to a group that uh, auctioned to a group that wanted to honor Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the novelist and, and short story writer. And they named it the Macondo Well. Well, they didn't, they named it after this fictional town. Um, in 100 Years of Solitude, which suffers from colonization, suffers from the gigantism of certain technological implements applied to a banana plantation, and eventually um, it actually more or less disappears in a conflagration. Um, it's completely and utterly destroyed. It's dissolute uh, at the end. And that is a sort of judgment on, and and by all of that process of colonization and um, technological, um, what do they call it? Sort of technological uh, innovation, but applied in order to, as our, as an epigraph for the book shows, to change the course of a river or to change the seasons in ways that are usually reserved just for God. Mm -hmm. So in order to be more godlike and to control everything, um, all these technological changes are applied, and eventually this leads to a horrific massacre and, and then to the downfall of the town as a whole. Mm -hmm. And what the people who named the well never could have imagined is that the well would be the cause of a conflagration as well. Yeah. The well would be the cause of this explosion, um, that there would be all sorts of echoes between the book and what happened on the Deepwater Horizon. So, for example, in a, a massacre occurs in the book uh, in which the corporation that runs the plant, the banana plantation, and the uh, government conspire to massacre thousands of uh, workers from the local town uh, who have protested the working conditions at the plantation. And their, their memory is said to be carried off into oblivion. They're put in train cars and and led to the sea and carried off into oblivion. Mm -hmm. Well, after the Deepwater Horizon um, explosion, there are uh, historical records that show that some of the people who experienced that explosion and the uh, horrors of it, people dying, losing limbs, 
uh, being on fire, were actually encouraged to sign papers saying they didn't remember anything about the incident. Oh, wow. Um, so sort of an, an erasure of memory mm-hmm. was even part of this um, part of this echo between the Macondo well and the town of Macondo. There's a reference to Macondo in the movie, the Roman Polanski movie, Chinatown. Yes. And uh, Chinatown, as we know, is it's about a lot of things, but it is it's some, in some ways turns on the uh, aqueduct projects that made Los Angeles more habitable and more easily developed in order to benefit wealthy developers. Um, massive engineering projects that were just supposed to make it easier to settle in L.A., mm-hmm. but these engineering projects had their downsides. These engineering projects had their challenges that they created for the community and the environment. Um, so this Macondo echo seems to me to uh, be telling when it comes to the way we think about the Gulf catastrophe, when it comes to the way we think about other challenges on the Gulf of Mexico environmentally, but also climate change. It stands in, I think, for something that takes a very long time to get to, 100 years, let's say, or in the case of climate change, hundreds of years, um, and yet has awful consequences that can be experienced in acute ways, even if they've built up over long periods of time. So the other question then was, um, why does it seem like so many Christians uh, kind of miss the the writ large issues uh, like mercury going into a body of water or larger mm. pollution or something like that, um, but are quick to say you know, that they're not guilty of personal sins. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen anything, something like that. But they miss these larger things um, that are Tower of Babel-esque uh, to kind of right. play off of the imagery that you just gave of being gods and creating waterways and whatnot. That's a great question. And I, I don't know if most Christians miss those things when we think about Christians globally. Okay, good. Um, and I don't know historically. I, I, I have a better sense that globally we may not be missing those things as much. Historically, it's difficult to tell, but I think— as American evangelicals, uh, we have a distinctive tendency to see very clearly individuals and rules. Mm-hmm. And we see very poorly uh, culture, structure, systems that move in the background and affect our, affect our outcomes, constrain our choices, make certain things more likely channel our costs to some far off place or channel the benefits to us. Um, Our blindness to structure systems and culture is I think a big part of the reason we don't see environmental challenges as part of our responsibility. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so, so where do we go from here? If, um, if climate change is a real thing, and I, I, want, I want to read uh, one sentence because uh, I read this one this morning, and um, of all the things that I have read and tried to study, and you know, kind of lectures that I've listened to to try to get a grasp on, is there a, a you know, how do I understand this? Uh, this probably helped more succinctly than almost anything that that I've read, and this is on page mm-hmm. sixty-one. It's in that chapter, the Macondo, Macondoization of the world. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, any decrease in ice cover, whether in the Arctic or Antarctic, uh, or in Greenland or the Andes, diminishes the amount of solar radiation that is reflected back into the atmosphere and increases the amount of solar radiation that is absorbed by the Earth's surface, only to be released slowly during periods of cooling and trapped by the greater concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Because of such feedback loops, it's possible that changes in climate will actually accelerate over the coming decades. So um, let's just assume for a second that that is accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, then where do we as believers go from here? Uh, we've talked about, you know, it's not enough to for an individual to do something. But, but collectively, if we're going to mobilize our thinking, our prayer lives, our behaviors, uh, what's the, be- the best next step? I think the best next step is to um, disentangle our responses to climate change in particular, since that's what that particular quote is about. Right. Disentangle our responses to climate change in particular from partisan ideologies, partisan affinities, which is one of the challenges to getting anything done here in the U.S., one of the ways, one of the proxies that uh, American evangelicals have used to understand climate change, unfortunately, is whether or not it maps onto their party's platform Mm -hmm. or position. Uh, We need to disentangle it from that and see it more in the light of what it means to love our neighbor well by handling certain tragic choices in ways that bear costs so that they may benefit. Mm -hmm. I think that practically means uh, everything from our smaller everyday choices, which the book is not primarily about, but I don't want to forget, um, all the way to uh, our willingness to be, to our willingness to implement and see and participate in a a new regime of taxes or taxation that may um, make carbon dioxide emissions and other greenhouse gas emissions more costly. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's actually uh, there's actually a lot of research done on how you can have a revenue neutral uh, carbon tax regime. And many economists support heartily a revenue neutral carbon tax regime where you tax the kinds of activities that emit a lot of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and you use those revenues to offset certain income taxes. Mm-hmm especially for uh, those who are poorer, because uh, carbon tax is a regressive tax, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um, The wealthy can afford it and may actually have more efficient access to more efficient uses of carbon. And the poor can't afford it as much, and they just have to go with whatever technology is most accessible to them, even if it pollutes a lot. So if we can just reduce the uses of it and then pour that back into mitigating the costs on the poor, that's a great way to to support climate action and love our neighbors. My guest today on Uncommentary has been Dr. Noah Tolley. We're talking about his book, The Gardener's Dirty Hands, Environmental Politics and Christian Ethics. And we've talked about a couple other things besides that. Uh, you're on Twitter. Is it at Noah Tolley? It is. It's at Noah Tolley. All right. I encourage you to follow Dr. Tolley on Twitter. Pick up his book when you get a chance. Uh, it's very, very thought-provoking. And uh, Noah Tolley, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Marty. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Uncommentary. I really appreciate you stopping by. Big shout out to James Peach, my audio engineer, and my daughter Abby, who helps with the scheduling. 
If you're not yet following Uncommentary on Twitter, please do so at UncommentaryPod, or you can even follow me at Marty Duran, both on Twitter, both pretty active. If you have not rated and reviewed in iTunes or your favorite podcaster, that would be a huge encouragement and a blessing. So please do that when you get just a moment of your time. Again, if you would like to support Uncommentary via Patreon or paypal.me slash uncommentarypod and make a one-time gift there. Or you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary and sign up for a monthly draft of whichever size you really want, starting at about two bucks. And that would be greatly appreciated as well. Until the next time, Sobadeo Gloria. <laughs>